Hi, Char Beauchart here. Like me, you obviously listen to podcasts. You're learning, and that's a good thing, but are you also earning ASHA CEUs as you listen? Newsflash, SpeechTherapyPD.com is offering a new discounted annual podcast subscription, and you need to take advantage of it. SpeechTherapyPD.com is the leader in speech-language pathology podcasts. They produce over 16 new podcasts with great topics, including ethics, every month. Listen to Speech Uncensored, First Bite, SLP Now, as well as the Speech Link. Here's what you do. Go to SpeechTherapyPD.com, access the podcast subscription, and at checkout, enter my special discount code to get a full $20 off. Instead of $79 per year, you pay just $59 and listen to as many as you want. Here's the code. Are you ready? Speech 20. Speech 20. That's it. Choose from over 175 hours of on-demand pod courses and get practical information and your CEUs. <laughs> it's absolutely a no-brainer. Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Char Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Do you ever feel like language therapy is kind of a massive undertaking? There's no one standard, no one-size-fits-all curriculum or protocol that we SLPs can follow. So that means spending time reading research and materials to figure out what techniques work best. And that's a tall order. In this episode, we learn how to streamline our language therapy and get better results by focusing on fewer skills and how to pick the right techniques to target in our language therapy. Get ready. Get your note-taking devices ready. You're going to need them. Here we go. Today, my guest is Dr. Karen Dudek Brannan. Previously, she worked 14 years in the school systems and helped hundreds of children, quotes, meet their therapy goals and find their least restrictive environments, their LREs, end quote. She confesses that when she started doing language therapy, she felt completely lost. And that's when she decided to make language and literacy her areas of expertise. So she went back got her doctorate in special education, and has devoted years to studying and compiling the best therapy techniques for school-aged language kids. She generously shares what she has learned through her programs and her services. Essentially, Dr. Karen focuses on the pediatric speech-language pathologist to make our language therapy have breakthroughs and improvements to be fulfilled as therapists and advance our careers. And thank you for that, Dr. Karen. Thank you for having me. Yes, this is your second visit to the Speech Link. Mm -hmm. So I am so excited to have you here. So, and welcome back. Thank you. It has been a year and a half since we spoke together on our first podcast. You know, that was the first Speech Link. I did. I remember that. <laughs> yes. And I was just thrilled to have you then. And I'm thrilled to have you now. And I bet during that year and a half, you've had time to read more, research more, and write more. Yep. And I'm anxious to hear all the practical information about language that you have to share with us. And I bet you've narrowed down some things. Mm -hmm. The thing is, language can be abstract. And many of us get kind of overwhelmed with the, I'm going to say, the vast nature of language. So here's my first question. Why are so many of us so overwhelmed when it comes to language therapy? 
Well, I think there's a couple different reasons. Whenever I have interacted with SLPs that I've mentored, different readers, or even when I was practicing in the schools, the common consensus was that first, there wasn't really there wasn't really a consensus about what's our role as SLPs in language and literacy. And also there really wasn't a curriculum like what the teachers have. And a lot of times SLPs that I have talked to, they say, I just wish we had some kind of curriculum like the teachers. But obviously the problem with that is that therapy and delivering a curriculum are not the same thing. And the whole point of why our students need help is because a curriculum wasn't working for them. So we need to do something that's individualized. But then the problem is, is because there's a lot of different areas that you could be covering when it comes to language. So when we don't have some kind of a set scripted protocol or curriculum, or at least not one that is kind of the standard the standard protocol like we do for a lot of other clinical areas, that just leaves a lot of questions to be answered. So it's just kind of like saying, look at all of this vast amount of information or all of these millions of different things that you could be addressing. Um, there's tons and tons. If you Google grammar flashcards or vocabulary worksheets or you know, go on Teachers Pay Teachers and go through all the different language and grammar things, there's just hundreds and thousands of different possibilities for materials and strategies that you could be targeting. So there's there's actually research out there that shows that having more options makes it harder to make a decision. So I think it comes down to um, decision-making fatigue of the therapist. Hmm. There's just too many things to choose from. And if they've always got to start from scratch and there's not really a set protocol, that's really if you think about it, a lot of work that a therapist has to do on top of, you know, having to treat other clinical areas, having a full-time caseload, not having enough time to do their paperwork, having to go to all these meetings. And, and then just after all of that, needing to actually be present during therapy and have the energy to do that. And then maybe having a life outside of work too. So <laughs> it's just a lot to ask and a lot to a lot to ask a full-time therapist to compile when there's not really there's not really one or at least one recognized way of doing things. So um, I know that when I was a therapist, I would get really frustrated with people telling me things like use your clinical judgment because of course we want to use our clinical judgment. But to me, that almost seemed like a, like, like almost a cop-out answer, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like a kind of a generic, you know, not non-specific answer that didn't really necessarily help and give me any guidance. So I think that that's why a lot of clinicians feel frustrated with this area because um, while they don't, well, it's not necessarily reasonable for, for them to want somebody to just tell you step-by-step -step exactly what to do every second of your therapy session it is really a lot to ask for when there's there's not really any um, one way of doing things. So that can be really challenging and asking a lot from, uh, right. from an SLP. Right. Well, and every child that we work with is different. 
their skills are different, their in capabilities are different, their backgrounds are different. It's just, it is amazing how language can be unique. You can have two kids with very similar results and both kids' language skills are just vastly different. Mm -hmm. And how do you meet those needs? Now, I bet you're going to start to zero in on and narrow down for us some of these things. Um, And in your title, you're going to give us three language therapy principles and probably some practicality to go with it. Um, So where do we start? Do we have a principle number one that you want us to start with? Or how do we zero in on what we do? Well, I think the first the first thing that is somewhat counterintuitive that I often tell SLPs that I mentor is really just the concept of less is more. Mm. So a lot of times when we get a language referral and when we actually look at really a lot of these students, and yes, they're all different, but we can actually see patterns when we look at kind of a, a bird's eye view of a lot of these language therapy referrals. And this is actually when I was practicing, I was starting to work on my doctorate, but I was on a problem solving team that um, in my building, in my elementary building, that uh, whenever there was some kind of an academic or behavioral concern, before there was a special ed evaluation, the a teacher could refer to this team. And sometimes we might brainstorm some strategies and then we'd never end up getting to an evaluation because we'd be able to remediate it mm-hmm. before it mm-hmm. ever got to that point. But then sometimes we would end up evaluating and the student would end up qualifying. And so a lot of the students that came through that team that I started to notice some patterns, but what I see a lot of SLPs doing, or I guess when they're expressing their frustrations They're really trying to work on a lot of different things. And I know that I was doing this as well. So they're kind of, you know, they're working on WH questions and they're working on following directions. They're working on, you know, grammar because the students are struggling with past tense and verb tenses and pronouns and all of these different things. And they've got this massive laundry list of language skills and they're almost seeing them kind of like these isolated skills. And so I know what I ended up doing when I was first starting out is that I was just kind of jumping around from skill to skill. And because there were so many different skills, I was just kind of jumping around without a system. And my students were confused because I was not spending enough time on any one skill for them to actually make progress. But then there was the fear in my head of, well, but what about all these other things they need to work on? Like, if I don't work on this thing, who's going to work on it? And how are they ever going to get better? So I, I just kind of felt like a chicken with my head cut off, jumping around from one skill to another. But when I actually started to look at patterns, I actually started to realize, and even when I started to to do research and read through journals for my doctoral work, and then when I actually started to uh, be involved in conducting some studies, I found that there were some patterns and, um, and I found that there were certain skills that if you targeted one group of skills or if you targeted one area, it actually could have an impact on other areas. So I started to see it as uh, kind of a, 
I don't want to say two, killing two birds with one stone, but I started to make that realization that I don't necessarily have to teach everything. I just have to teach the right things. And I have to figure out what things are really causing or the, the root cause of the this processing issue that my students are having. And if I target the root cause, then what's going to happen is that that can have an impact on some other skills. So really the key is not trying to fit everything in, but is really learning how to focus and realizing that sometimes less is more. Sometimes you can actually make more of the time that you have by just narrowing down to fewer skills. And, um, and there's a lot of, uh, there are, there is some research out there that one of the biggest, the biggest things that I see happening, um, one of the patterns is that a lot of times there's a big push for reading comprehension. So people are working on things like inferencing and main idea, um, things like that. Mm -hmm. And it's not that those things are bad things to work on. A lot of times students absolutely need to work on those things. But the problem is, is that if students, students who don't necessarily have the underlying language skills, so if they can't understand words and they can't understand individual sentences, they're not going to be able to state the main idea of an entire paragraph. Right. So a lot of times we're kind of putting the cart before the mm -hmm. horse and working on the high level comprehension when students don't even have the underlying language skills to be able to do that. So what a lot of times people end up doing is that they're like, they know that vocabulary is low. They know that grammar is low. They know students struggle with syntax and answering questions. And then they also know that they, they are having a hard time making inferences, um, following directions, those high level cohesion skills. So they try to work on all of it at once instead of working on just the things that are causing the problem. So, so a lot of times what I recommend people do is instead of stressing about the high level comprehension work is just really focusing on things like vocabulary, because we know that if you don't have adequate comprehension of enough of, of the words in a text that you're reading, for example, that you're not going to comprehend the big picture. So a lot of times the students are struggling academically because they don't have good vocabulary skills. And those are what's really causing a lot of these breakdowns. Mm -hmm. So really, when I started to look at patterns, vocabulary was one of those things that for a lot of these language referrals that I was getting on the student referral team, a lot of them had issues with vocabulary. And I found that when I actually started just saying, you know what, I know that they struggle with all these other things, comprehension and, you know, all these other these things over here. I'm just going to really try to hit vocabulary and do it really well, rather than trying to stretch myself thin and work on all of the things. And that's when I actually started making breakthroughs. And it wasn't that I was ignoring the other things. Eventually, for certain kids, I did need to cycle back around to those high level comprehension skills. But sometimes it was even uh, a matter of really working as a team, you know, knowing, okay, there's a special ed teacher that's working on some of these comprehension things, or the, they're working in the classroom on comprehension, and that wasn't working. So why am I going to do more of what wasn't working? Maybe I can right. be the 
in peace over here and just say, okay, the teacher is doing a good job working on that. And then I'll fill this over here. So I don't have to do everything. I can focus on the root cause and I can, um, again, try to let certain other people that are working with this student maybe address some of those other things. Okay. So let me stop you there. So number one is in a phrase, less is more. Mm-hmm. Zero in on mm-hmm. the the bottom line, the foundational cause, or at least one of them. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that that's vocabulary. I couldn't agree with you more. Now let's look at, you have your kindergartner that comes in. And, and I know I read somewhere that you're average regular kindergarten curriculum, you know, that the child needs to have at least knowledge and use of 3000 words. Our kids come in with 1500 at best, let's just Mm -hmm. say, what do I do? Do I go into the kindergarten and, and do an activity with the teacher or by myself, or do I coordinate with that kindergarten teacher and maybe the first grade teacher and find out what words that they are using, take a look at their curriculum? Uh, is there just a list of words? Do I work on prepositions? How do I zero in on that? What do I physically need to do? Well, before you can figure out what you physically need to do, the first thing is to understand. So with with the co- the understanding that vocabulary is a lot of times that root cause, mm-hmm. the I guess the next challenge is a lot of times, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of like you're asking, like, right. how does that actually translate into what we actually do in therapy? Mm-hmm. But, and a lot of times when people come to me for, for mentoring, for just asking questions, they want to jump right to, okay, what does that look like in therapy? So first of all, I would say, um, before you can do that, you have to understand what pieces fit into vocabulary, because Mm -hmm. that is really where I struggled in trying to figure out what to actually do. Um, because like you said, um, there's a lot of questions that go on, on unanswered. So before you, you even really need to think about, do I go into the classroom? Do I need to, um, you know, what do I consult with the teacher about? You want to figure out what are the skills that I'm actually addressing and what's the framework I'm going to use to do that. And then that's where you could start plugging in, okay, what actual materials do I need? What actual activities am I going to do in therapy and where do I do it? A lot of times people start jumping to like, again, um, you know, should I go into the classroom? Um, Things like that. But really it's less important where you're doing the therapy, but, but more so are you targeting on the rights, the right skills and at the right time. Okay, good. I like that. You're giving us, you're parsing it even further and you're giving us more foundational knowledge. Uh, You mentioned something about processing issues. Does it have something to do with that or am I on the wrong path? Um, Yeah, it does. It does have to do with processing issues. So when it comes to figuring out how to remediate those processing issues, a lot of times what is going, what happens and the way that the symptoms present themselves is that there uh, there might be a student who's struggling to follow directions in the classroom 
or they might, you know, again, not be following along with what's going on. The teacher might be asking them questions and they're just way off track with what they're saying. Or maybe the students are reading stories or listening to stories and the teacher is saying, okay, what happened in the story? Or who is this character? And then the student kind of looks like, or give some off the wall answer that has nothing to do with what you were talking about, or just clearly is an understanding. Right. So a lot of times what we might want to, what people might want to do is jump right into the classroom, but we really want to figure out why that's happening in the first place. And this can be for somebody in kindergarten. And honestly, this concept, although the thing that's going on in the classroom would be a lot different, really this concept applies all the way from K through 12. So the first thing that you want to do before you can even start to figure out what do I do in therapy is figure out what skills fit under vocabulary. And I, I think I did talk about this on my previous, um, my previous appearance on this, um, this podcast, but um, as I, when I, talked before about how a lot of SLPs want a curriculum. The reason is because they want to know, okay, I've got a therapy session in, in 30 <laughs> right. minutes. What do I do? <laughs> like what, what tasks am I supposed to do with my student here? Um, and the closest thing that we can get to a curriculum, not for the sake of needing things cookie cutter, but for the sake of just narrowing so that we have less cognitive load on us so that we can actually show up in therapy and do a good job and know that we're working on the right thing is having more of a framework. So you have this, it's kind of like a big umbrella with vocabulary on the top. And then you have almost little like fingers <laughs> underneath this umbrella or just little pieces that fall under that umbrella mm -hmm. that break vocabulary down further. And then once you understand those pieces that can impact vocabulary, then that's where you can start to figure out, okay, what strategies can I use to target this one, this element? Oh. So the, um, the key is, again, you're going to use vocabulary as kind of that um, and I call it the domino effect or the first domino where you knock down vocabulary and then that kind of addresses some of those other processing issues further down the line. And yes, sometimes you have to go knock the other things down, but <laughs> it does knock down a lot of those things. But hmm. the five pieces that really fit under vocabulary are things like um, number one, um, phonology. So then this is really big with, with students who are first learning to read. Part of knowing a word is knowing how a word sounds and being able to recognize it when you hear it. So, you know, when you have a word on the tip of your tongue and you're like, what was that word? Mm -hmm. It's because you don't have a good phonological representation of it. Mm -hmm. So when we pick activities, we want to pick activities that incorporate some type of phonological element and emphasis on the phonological features of words, because that is something that adds meaning to words. So we want to be able to incorporate phonology into our therapy. And then we also want to incorporate things. Um, so component number one would be phonology. Um, and then we also want to incorporate things like orthography. So tying the written symbol to the way that that word sounds, because that also impacts meaning. Mm -hmm. And so when you've got a kindergartner and they're learning to read and spell, 
meaning spelling impacts the the meaning of words and our ability to recognize words in print has to do with vocabulary so we want to incorporate activities that tie meaning to print when we are working in therapy so that's the second thing so we've got phonology and orthography and then the third thing that fits under that big umbrella of vocabulary is morphology um this is something that i think um there is I would say that we are doing a better job incorporating phonological awareness into curriculums, but a lot of times there's this misconception that morphology is only for older students. And a lot of times if you know students are in secondary school and you're just now talking about morphology and working on it with them, it's like, oh, we should have been doing this way earlier. Uh, yeah. So any type of activity that's going to address those pieces of words, again, that that has to do with meaning as well. So that's part of vocabulary. Yeah. And that's also something that's going to impact spelling, which is something that we're doing in those early grades. And then the other uh, remaining pieces are semantics, which has to do with meanings, which I think a lot of people realize that semantics and vocabulary go together. And then the final one is syntax. So how we use words. So not just, um, not just what words mean, but what words do, because we have to understand those function words in the sentence. So when you're thinking about the activities that you're actually going to plan, what you want to do is start to think, okay, vocabulary is this big picture area that I'm addressing, but then I've got these five areas and I'm going to want to have almost a suite of strategies that I can target and kind of cycle through in therapy that are going to incorporate all five of these components and that I'm going to kind of cycle through those. So it's not exactly a curriculum because it's not scripted, but it is a framework that helps narrow things substantially. But because it's a framework and you can scaffold and things like that, it still allows you to be individualized. And those are the things like when we actually look at research on, you know, what, when you look at kids in kindergarten and, you know, longitudinally look at them all the way through high school, the kids that are struggling with things like reading comprehension, which is going to be essential as kids move through academically in the school systems, they can't read, it's going to be really hard for them. So the kids that struggle on those skills are the ones that are still struggling on comprehension in high school. So that's why we can be that missing piece that's going to hit those areas um, instead of just only focusing on the comprehension. Obviously, the comprehension piece is important, but it's, it's a cognitive load issue. We've got to address those underlying language skills. Right. So that's kind of uh, the second principle, would you say? Mm -hmm. Looking at the causes um, kind of knocking down that first domino, <laughs> kind yeah. of looking at the causes. Now, you know, there's an area that I'd like to zero in within those five, and those are excellent. And the one that I want to zero in on is the phonological awareness piece. Mm -hmm. And I just, oh, wow, that is so important. But so many of our teachers focus on the phonics. Mm -hmm. But I really like to hear your take on phonological awareness and then phonics. I see them as kind of two different things, or at least kind of like a Venn diagram where they overlap. But what can I say to my teachers mm -hmm. to perhaps encourage them to emphasize phonological awareness, maybe a little bit more? 
I think the teachers, and at least my experience when I was in the school systems, there were a lot of little things that I guess were kind of misconceptions with spelling instruction and phonics instruction. I would say the biggest thing, and I mean, I can think of like, <laughs> you know, a list, a, a ton of skills that I'd love to, to teach yeah. people, but I like to think of again, go with the less is more principle, right? Like I did at the beginning and just chip away at it and think, okay, what is the one thing? If I wanted to go have a conversation with a teacher about spelling and phonics instruction and have them just have one aha moment that maybe starts to shift their thinking, what is that one thing? Even though I have probably 50 things I'd like to tell them. Yeah. So I, I think the biggest misconception when it comes to phonological awareness and spelling is the concept of sight words, because that is, yeah. it's often misused. Yeah. And I think that that when you think about kids who are struggling that are often on our caseloads, it, it doesn't cause that many problems for kids who are just naturally picking up on things implicitly, but it does cause a problem for kids who are struggling. So for example, if I were to say the word cat, you would probably in your head think semantically about what a cat means to you, like a little furry animal that meows, but you also might think in your head the, the sounds like at, but then you also, if you had to write it, would probably in your head have a picture of C-A-T and you would picture that and you wouldn't have to sit there and sound it out you would just do it automatically. Mm -hmm. and so for you, cat would be a sight word because you don't have to go through this arduous process of figuring out how to spell it or decode it. Or if you saw it in print, it would be like, boom, right away. You wouldn't have to think about it. It would be automatic. Uh -huh. And sight words are words that where kids have developed that automaticity where it's just like, boom, I know it right away. But people, the where the misconception comes is that people think that it's rote memorization, but it's not. What's happening is that all those things are just happening so quickly. You're still going through the process of, oh, I see that letter. Oh, hmm, I know that that letter um, ties to a sound. And I know that all of those letters together represent some kind of, some word that has a sequence of sounds together. And I know that those sequence of sounds that happen together mean something all together like that. And so it does have to do with phonology. But the thing is, is that it it's not for something that's a sight word. It just happens so quickly that we think it's kind of a rote thing when really it's just automatic. But the problem is, is that for kids that are struggling, they it's not automatic for them. So what a lot of times people are trying to do is just do these sight word memorization things where they send kids home with a box of words that have no phonological similarities or no orthographic similarities or no patterns. And they're just high frequency words, which of course we should be looking at words that are high frequency because that makes sense, but they're trying to just rote um, memorize the words by just the um, the letters without drawing a connection to the sounds 
that go with the letters mm-hmm. and um, and tying that phonics in. So I would say that with phonological awareness, typically um, it's it's more focused on the sounds or really more the the phonemes. So kind of the the f- tying the physical um, acoustic sounds to the actual cognitive meaning behind the sounds. I would say phonological awareness is that, but then phonics also ties in the the orthographic component and ties it together. Uh-huh. So yeah, I think it is important to make that distinction, but I think it's more important to make the distinction of um, just how how that process works, that we are making all of those associations at once. Mm -hmm. Because what we need to do for those kids who are struggling is go through all of those steps. And it does seem like a kind of a tedious process, but we have to go through those steps with them and teach them explicitly, like, you know, this sound represents this letter. um, And this is why a word is spelled the way that it is because they're not going to just rote make those connections. Um, And it just seems like those other kids that are getting it, it seems like they're memorizing it, but they're not. They're just learning it implicitly. Uh So that would probably be when it comes to phonological awareness and phonology and how it ties to orthography, probably the biggest distinction that I like people to make that I want to emphasize, because I think just knowing that once they make that realization, a lot of times that translates to the way that they teach other skills. So really essentially applying the less is more principle, not just to the way that we teach students, but also to the way that we interact with people that we are collaborating with. Because I mean, really, (laughs) I think that adults learn in a lot of the same ways, you know, we have we have overload as well. Mm-hmm. So, so that would be the biggest thing okay. that I would, that I would say about phonological awareness. Wow. Well, those sight words, everybody has sight words in first grade and second grade, and they have their lists and curriculums come with sight words. You know, we don't just have the Dolch lists and the Fry lists. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, the Pearson lists and you have the McGraw Hill lists and everybody has their sight word lists. And right. the teachers that I've seen just, you know, they say, okay, here's this list. And you know, that they want those kids to visually memorize them. Mm-hmm. You know, here's the shape of yeah. this word and I'll just say it for you. And you read it and say it and do that 800 gazillion times. Right. And they're hoping <laughs> that that that's going to stick. Very interesting. Wow, this is great. So let's get back to your principles. So let me review, let me, because I've, God. I know I've gone on a lot of tangents here with, with my principles. Um, happens a lot when I start talking about language, <laughs> uh, which makes sense. Language can seem a little bit messy. So <laughs> the first one was less is more, just the concept that you don't necessarily need to target every skill directly in your language therapy because some skills have an impact on others Uh and also because you can collaborate. You know, sometimes you can be working on one thing and other people you're working with can be reinforcing other things. The second is the concept of when you're, when you're applying that concept of less is more, you want to start with that first domino. So what's the one skill that when you target it and when you make it your main area of focus, that it's going to start knocking down those other dominoes automatically. So really figuring out the root cause. And then the third principle is all about activating metacognition. So 
as you can see, we're still kind of in the big picture bird's eye view here. And again, I, I start with all of this because if I just went right to like, here are 10 ways that you can build vocabulary or whatever, a lot of times then what happens is that we're, we're kind of in the weeds. And that's where, that's where I was, where it's like, okay, I just have these random strategies. I like people to see the big picture. So once you figure out, okay, vocabulary is my main area, and then these are these five areas that are going to be my framework that are going to inform what I do in therapy, then we want to figure out how, and we want to figure out what's the approach I want to take with just how I frame this for my students. So I like to call this the concept of teaching your students to fish rather than giving them the fish. And this is why I'm very careful about the way that I um, mentor SLPs with teaching vocabulary, because a lot of times when people think about teaching vocabulary, they think about just like the students know these specific words, which of course, word selection is important. I have an entire course on how to pick the right words that's relevant, but it's not just about the content, it's about the process. So that's why the third principle is all about making it meta, activating metacognition and metalinguistic awareness. Because what you want to do when you're addressing those five areas is not just teaching students words or teaching students specific sentence structures, is teaching them to think about language differently and think about words differently so that once they leave your therapy room, they're thinking about words in a way that's going to help them to learn implicitly. So more about the process of thinking about words and language rather than um, just, again, like memorizing words. So let me give you an example, because I know that that's still very high level one, and this is in an, in an article that I can share with your listeners where I talk about these three principles. Um, one topic that I talk about a lot in, in some of my programs for SLPs is just um, building semantic skills, uh, working through things like categorization and just teaching students to define and describe words. So a lot of times people are like, well, how can you tell if they like, how do you measure if they know these words and they think that you need to go in there with a list of tier two vocabulary or whatever. And by the end of your six week period or whenever your data collection period is that the students have to quote, know these words. And that's actually not the most productive way of looking at it because um, language growth isn't linear. There's not really this one you know, standard recognized kids need to know, you know, by age eight, kids need to know this list of words that just doesn't exist because language growth is so impacted by environment. So what I recommend rather than um, focusing on things like knowing specific words is still be aware of specific words so that you can use those as your probes that you're going to study in therapy but focus more on the process of describing words. And this is just one specific example. This is one of the strategies that I teach that hits both semantics and syntax, but really working on word definitions. Because when you actually are working on word definitions, what you're 
enabling students to do is is cue into specific semantic features. So for example, when you are describing a noun, if your definition is going to be accurate, you need the category. So teaching a student to define a word and start with the category and then give you some other descriptive attributes, if they understand that format of, of thinking about the category and then going on and elaborating with a couple more descriptive attributes, and they know how to define a word with at least three to four different pieces of information, that's more of a process rather than just focusing on, like, did they know that specific word? Of course, they need some, some content knowledge of the word in order for them to do it. But if they're more aware of that process, when they encounter new words, what they're going to do is start thinking about that and be like, wait, what group does this word go in? Like, what's its category? And you want them to start thinking about that because that's going to help with their storage and retrieval. And that's going to help with things like word finding. So if you can show a student how to give a good word definition, that's going to be a lot more functional than, you know, can you match these vocabulary words to the definitions? So that's what I, one example of um, how to apply metacognition, because it's more about a strategy and thinking about words. And also when you do that specific strategy, when kids encounter word definitions on their tests, they're going to be looking for that information. So they're not going to just be rote memorizing words for the test and then forgetting them. But let's be honest, a lot of times <laughs> they might not even get it right on the test. So right. um, it's, it's more about thinking and process rather than content, even though content is relevant too, but we don't want to just get stuck there. That is so good. Okay. So you're saying in some cases to take a word mm -hmm. and we won't talk about where you get it, but you've got a word mm -hmm. and then you're discussing and imparting the definition and you want the child, you want to know that that child knows the definition is be able to perhaps describe it or so on. Mm -hmm. um, did you throw in associations or synonyms or so you're taking a word and then branching out from there. Is that kind of what you're suggesting? Um, for example, when you're working on defining specific types of words, mm -hmm. a strategy that you can do for a student is to show them how to describe the word with the defining characteristics. So for example, for a noun, one of the defining characteristics that needs to be there is the category. So you start with uh, with an Aristotelian definition. So for example, if I were going to define the word pizza, I would say something like a pizza is a kind of Italian food. And then from there, you can kind of elaborate and, and show them how to put other information in there that's relevant. Like it's a kind of Italian food that's round, that you know can have cheese on it and toppings. And, and then you can kind of, there's a little bit of flexibility with the type of features you go from there. But the really the thing that you want them to get is what's the defining feature of, of, of that kind of a word? What needs to be there? Um, because when you, when you do that, what happens is that that helps them to really solidify that definition and really understand what the word means. So for a noun, um, what you're going to want to do when you're teaching a meta strategy, when you're working on defining words, is to show them that that's how they're going to use um, the category. And that's the syntax that they're going to use to define that word. Okay. So an X is a Y that Z, like a pizza is a kind of food that you can eat that's round and et cetera. 
Um, so for synonyms and antonyms, um, those are actually um, for for words like like verbs and adjectives. A synonym is actually the defining characteristic or the defining attribute that you're going to want for ah. those words. So when you're defining a verb, what you usually do is use kind of a the, the to be um, syntax. So like, um, let me try to think of an example. Um, to sprint means to run or something like that. You would use another verb that means the same thing. So when you're teaching them that syntax, it's going to help them to be a little bit more aware of what kind of information they need to put in there. And then it also is going to help pull it out if, because a lot of times kids know meanings of words, they just can't pull it out because they don't have the right syntax. Um, so here we are talking about syntax again, but yeah, um, it kind of, it all merges together, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And again, a, a, another point I wanted to make too, um, with this framework and with being meta is that a lot of times, um, with those five components I mentioned, so phonology, orthography, morphology, semantics, syntax, when you're working on one, you're all, you're, I would guarantee you that you're also working on another. They're related to vocabulary, but they're also yes. related to each other. And so, you know, with the whole phonological awareness discussion with semantics and syntax and all of those, there's usually you're working on multiple at, at a time. And so um, I think that's the key is, is just being aware that you're usually not just working on something in a vacuum. So hopefully that answered your question. <laughs> yes, very good. Okay, so is there anything else that you want to mention on the meta? Um. I think the biggest thing, not necessarily from a tactical standpoint, although there's a lot I could elaborate on um, from that standpoint, but more so just from a more of a paradigm shift and, uh, is that a lot of SLPs that I um, have mentored, I think there is uh, a fear of getting it wrong or a fear of like, what if I do this, you know, if I don't know how to do this, because a lot of times with, with these skills, we are so good at using these language skills that we use them implicitly. So since we're not used to talking about them, we might have the skill and have the ability to use it, but we don't know how to talk about it with our students the way that they need it. So there's also a learning curve for us where we're like, wait a minute, I don't even, I use that word all the time and I don't even know how to define it. So just just the, the mindset of giving yourself some grace and it's fine to just, if you're in the middle of a therapy session and you're expecting to define a word for a student and you're like, wait a minute, I don't know the answer. Let me go look that up. There's an opportunity to show students how to problem solve. Um, and don't worry about that. And also don't worry about your therapy session being like this, this has to happen at this point in the session. And you know, you can, you can play around with it. You're not going to do anything that's harmful for your students. If you spend all session talking about one word, you know, I mean, right. it's, there's not this, this framework is meant to, uh, to narrow things, but there's not this, it's not this rigid thing where it has to be done in a certain way. So I think just kind of letting go and realizing that, um, it's okay to play around with this. It's okay for it to be not perfect or for there to be things that feel like they're unplanned or unanswered and kind of up in the air when you go into therapy sessions with this kind of a thing. Uh -huh. 
So just, um, and I know that that's not necessarily how we've been trained. We've been trained in accountability and data collection and compliance, but uh, think about how we learn. That's not how people learn language. You know, we learn when things are a little, um, a little more free and open. So it's okay. It's like that. Enjoyable. Yeah, it's got to be enjoyable. Um, I have a course that I do, and it, and it's called Instill the Love of Words. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gets, you know, kind of dances around the meta piece, because I want my kids to really enjoy words. Yeah. And uh, there was a time when I asked my kids, my language kids, do you like words? And most of them would say no. You know, they liked math, or they liked going outside, or they liked playing video games, but most of them didn't like words. They didn't like reading. They didn't like any of that. So I thought, uh oh, that's kind of a bottom line, isn't it? Yeah. So I I totally agree with you that I want my kids to become intrigued with words. And then it's all up from there. Yeah. Now we have, you know, just a few minutes here, but mm-hmm. you mentioned that you have a few strategies or maybe some techniques on how to zero in on what words to use. Do you get your words from curriculum words? Do you get them from um, maybe just books that you're reading with the children or that the teachers are reading in the classrooms? How do we select words? So yes, um, I usually use the tiers of vocabulary framework as a starting point. So yes, a lot of them end up being tier two vocabulary. So really the question Mm -hmm. you want to ask is, is this word difficult and will it occur frequently? And, um, and is it going to be a word that is going to help my student understand more difficult activities and more difficult words? So those are really the criteria that you want to use. Typically, um, that is going to be, those are going to be tier two words. You can't guarantee it though, because there are certain times that we might need to work on tier one words. And then there are other times where it might be appropriate to pull in a tier three word here and there. But yes, typically they're tier two words that are from the curriculum. Um, I do have some tier two vocabulary that I offer in some of my programs. I do have a, a free download as well. But um, really, I offer those as more of these are examples of tier two words, not, you know, because I say this is a tier, a second grade tier two word list. I'm not saying by any means, like, you have to only use these with second graders. And, you know, it's the end of the world if they don't know these words by the end of second grade. It's more about examples. So, yes, the best place to get them would be from books that the students are reading or from the curriculum. And in therapy, it's feasible for you to be able to use between one to three words per week as probes that you can study and use some of these strategies that I've mentioned, such as the word definition. So like if you have a 30 to 40 minute therapy session per week, you could you can maybe have one to three words that you're going to use for probes as that week. And then, you know, obviously in the future, you might cycle them back around, but that's a good starting point. All right. Sounds good. Uh, do you do anything with word books to bring in that written piece? Um, it's not a strategy that I outline specifically in my programs, but what I do recommend is that when working on syntax and vocabulary, that you do some extension activities that involve using words and sentences. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that could absolutely be 
a part of an extension activity. Okay. Um, there is an element of leaving this open because a lot of times I might give uh, my my mentees some these are activities that I know will work, but I don't ever say this, these are the only activities that are work that will work. Um, but yeah, that would I would say that would fit in as an extension activity. I kind of like word books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I take the approach that they're not graded. Right. I take the approach that this is that a word book is their book, and that they are an author of their book. And they're not going to be graded on it. Mm -hmm. And it's going to stay in the therapy room. And when they come back in, we can add to those words. We can go back and read them, talk about them, so that it really gives kind of a way to reference what we've done. And then also, they come up with the words. You know, as we're going through our words, is this a word that you would like to put in your book? And invariably, one child wants to put it in his or her book, and everybody else in the group wants to put it in their books as well. But I kind of like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, actually, now that you mention it, I there was a uh, a strategy that I, what I called it is some, I, I think what you're saying is something like, uh, they've call, I've heard it called a spelling dictionary or a spelling journal where it's like, oh, I learned this word. I'm going to go put it in my spelling journal. Um, I've called it. In the past, what I've called it is an MOI builder, MOI meaning mental orthographic image, which is really the technical term for a sight word. So basically just, I've learned how to spell this word. I know what it means. So I'm going to write it down and have that experience with the print and put it somewhere that I can go back and reference it. So yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that's a good strategy that you can have in your toolbox. That sounds great. You have referred along the way today to your website, to your blog. I bet you have a Facebook page. You're mm-hmm. probably on Instagram. How can we get in touch with you? You want to share some of those with us? Sure. Okay. So let me start with the the topic of today. We talked about just the three principles of making language therapy. I think better results with less effort in your language therapy. Mm -hmm. So there is an article on my website that essentially outlines some of the concepts that I've talked about today. And that also will link you to a, a download. It's called the vocabulary booster for SLPs that will walk you through the strategy of describing nouns that I referenced today. Yes. So that's a link that I could give you, um, it's kind of a long URL, but um, but it is on my blog. So I can share that link with you okay. um, if you want to share that with your listeners. But then also for my social accounts and my website. So my website is drkarenspeech.com. So dr, not the full word doctor, but just drkarenspeech.com. Um, I am also on Facebook. The Facebook page is Dr. Karen Speech and Language. And then my Instagram handle is Dr. Karen Speech Language, all one word. Again, doctor is D-R, not the full word doctor. Okay, great. Well, you're amazing. Thank you. I just want to just delve into your brain and live there for a while and hope that some of it rubs off. I appreciate that. Oh, well, we appreciate it. Thank you so much for delving into all of this and distilling down and just listening to you share your information is just you know, so helpful. Well, and I appreciate you having me back again. Yes. Maybe we can do it again. Yep. Round three. That's right. Less than a year <laughs> and a half this time, perhaps. Huh? Yep. yep. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Mm, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.